Jeremiah chapter 14, Jeremiah chapter 14. The title is is Judah's Terrible Drought. And as we read this, we will see so much of it really is similar to what our nation is going through right now. Up to this point, Jeremiah has been prophesying during the time that Josiah was, Josiah was king. And now we find Jeremiah delivering a prophecy during the reign of Jehoiakim. And during the last part of King Josiah's reign, he did a very dumb thing. He fought against Necho, an Egyptian king, uh, uh, the contemporary of Josiah, king of Judah. For some reason, King Josiah declared war against the king of Assyria. And he led a powerful army and marched north. But he was met by the king of Judah at Megiddo, who wouldn't let him pass through his territory where a fierce battle was fought, and Josiah was killed. We see the passage in 2 Chronicles 35, verses 20 through 24. And Jeremiah mourned for him because they had been friends. And after King Josiah's death, the nation started falling back into idolatry. And its fall downward, and it was quick, and it was terrible, as we'll see in this chapter. Going back to Leviticus 26, the Lord is talking about when he gave the law to the people, about the blessings they would experience if, if they obeyed the law of God. But then he talks about their disobedience and the curses that would come if they disobeyed the law. Now, there are certain consequences To be expected as a result of certain behavior. And we need to understand that. You know, it's like if you stick your finger in an electrical outlet, you know what's going to happen. Certain behaviors bring about certain results. You are going to get hurt. You're going to get burned, shocked. That's just the basic laws of electricity. That kind of behavior, that kind of action is going to bring about that kind of response. And what's true in the natural physical laws is also true in in the spiritual laws. You reap what you sow. There are certain actions that will bring about a certain response. And God knows what actions will provoke what responses. Like I said, you reap what you sow. And the idea of sowing and reaping in relation to our behavior is often used in the Bible. The idea of sowing and reaping in relation to conduct is often found in the scriptures. God has given us the spiritual laws, the word of God. And God said, if you obey these laws, this will be the result. You'll be happy, you'll be prosperous. And he tells them what will happen by obeying these laws. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Speaking to Joshua in chapter uh, Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it. Notice, in it, day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. But God said, if you disobey these words, my law, the Bible, then these are the consequences of disobeying. You know, and then he lists them. This is what's going to happen to you. And I think of how fair God is in that he always warns others in advance 
about the consequences of sin, about the consequences you can expect of certain behavior. So when the consequences do come, you really can't blame God for the disasters that have happened to you because God told you exactly what would happen. It's just the unavoidable consequences. Again, it's like, it's like when a child, you know, sticks his finger in the electrical socket, he's going to get shocked. But he shouldn't turn around and blame his parents. It's your fault that I got hurt. No, they warned him. Don't put your finger in the electrical outlet because you're going to get burned. And they know that's just the way it is. But we so often make a big mistake blaming God for our problems that we bring upon ourselves. And yet God says, I told you it was going to happen. It's not that he did this. He warned you that it was going to happen. He tried to tell you in advance. A certain kind of behavior is going to bring about a certain kind of response. And when it happens, you can't say, why did you do this to me, God? No, I warned you it was going to happen. Cause and effect. Reap from what you sow. And so that's the way it is. And we can't make blame God for bringing our, our difficulties upon ourselves. And yet God says that this is what's going to happen to you if you do these things. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 19, God warned the people. He said, if you don't do all of these commandments, certain things are going to happen. And he says, these are the consequences. These are going to be the results. Let me read to you Leviticus 26, 14 through 19. God says, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, which is another word for his word, you know, his law, or if your soul abhors or hates my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. In other words, the heavens are going to be shut up. As a result of the heavens being shut up, the earth will become hardened. He's speaking about no rain. He will make the heavens hardened like bronze where no rain will come down and the earth will become hardened because of the lack of moisture. And then he says in verses 19 through 20, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain for your land. Notice shall not produce its, uh, shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 through 24, God said pretty much the same thing. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It, that is the power and the dust, shall come down on you until you are destroyed. A part of the punishment and results of God taking his hand of blessing away from the nation would be a drought. 
Now, here at this particular time in Scripture, God was taking his hand of blessing away from the nation by bringing a drought. What does that say to our nation today? The worst drought we've been in for as long as they can remember. Droughts were viewed as signs of God's displeasure in the idolatrous days of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. Now, all of these things were designed by God to turn the people's hearts back to Him. What does that say about the droughts today and the things that are going on in our nation today? It's to wake people up. It was to wake up the Israelites to the fact that, that God is taking His hand of blessing off of you. Hey, guys, He's saying you're on the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. We're on a path that's leading us to destruction and the whole purpose of God is to turn them away from the path, back to the path of righteousness, back onto the path of blessing, back to that narrow road. He says, but if you're stubborn and you, and you want to do your own thing and you don't want to listen to God, then more and more punishment will result. And it's interesting that the final thing God said would happen is that you would be overcome by your enemies. You would be scattered throughout the whole world. That's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. You can, you can look at their history. And you can look at those things that God said would happen to them if they turned from Him. And they did happen to them after they turned from God. God had laid the whole thing out to them and warned them. But they still wouldn't listen to God and they wouldn't listen to his warnings as people today don't listen to God and don't listen to his warnings. So with that little bit of background, let's begin with chapter 14, looking at verses uh, 1 through 6. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord that came to me, or to Jeremiah, concerning the droughts. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land. And they cry of Jerusalem, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their, la- their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. Here, in our text, the the, the nation is in, in its final downward spiral towards death. There's no water. The land is parched. At this present time, they're experiencing an extremely severe drought where the ground has become as hard as brass or iron. We are seeing our lakes and, and, our, and our streams drying up, aren't we? Water levels lower than ever before. It says here there were no crops. We're seeing farmers now having problems producing crops and the food is becoming you know, more and more scarce. Cattle. Not having enough water, you need grass to feed them. You need water to grow the grass. And some of these, 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 these farmers who, who you know, settle, uh, sell, uh, have cattle and they, it's, it's their income, they, they, they sell it for beef, they're selling it off to other people because they can't afford to take care of them. No crops. The trees are dying. 
Jeremiah says. There's no water. The wells and the cisterns have gone dry. So he's describing some of the conditions here. Even the cattle would leave their calves because there was no water to drink. No grass for grazing. And it would mean sure death to, death to the calf and the mother too. All of this is revealing the fact that God was judging them. This is one of the 13 famines mentioned in the Bible and all of them were judgments of God on the land. Just like the land that was bare and and unfruitful, so were the lives of the people because they had rejected the water of life. To whom the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. God was showing them that what was happening to the physical earth was also happening in a spiritual sense in their hearts. Habakkuk wrote this just about the same time of Jeremiah. Habakkuk mentions the conditions that were existing at that time. He said, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Habakkuk 3.17. He's speaking about this terrible time of drought here. There's no grazing for the cattle or the sheep. The ground is dry. It's dried up so that the sheep and the cattle have died. It's happening right now in our nation. Jeremiah says there's no fruit on the trees. And so this long, drawn-out drought was a time of tremendous nationwide disaster. The mother deer would usually take care of her little fawn. But now because the drought is so bad that the mother deer would abandon the little fawn that she gave birth to in order to go look for grass and water. Jeremiah says the wild donkeys, they would go to the high places, they'd sniff the wind like jackals trying to smell and catch a smell of water somewhere. They were straining their eyes looking for grass, but there was none to be found. This nationwide drought wasn't just affecting the whole human race, it was also affecting all the wild animals too, all of creation. The drought is so severe that Jeremiah prays to the Lord. And in his prayer, he goes to God to confess the sins of the people. Look at verse 7. O Lord, notice, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you. Notice how Jeremiah is including himself here as being one of the sinners. He didn't say all those people. No, he said we. There's no holier-than-thou attitude in Jeremiah. He doesn't show any signs of having a critical attitude toward the people. Notice he says, our backslidings. He says, we have sinned. It's real easy for us, God's people, to be critical of others. But Jeremiah identified himself with God's sinning people. If you can take your place before God... Confess your own sins as well as the sins of your people. Then you can speak about them or speak about the judgment of God. But until you can do that, we shouldn't try to speak on God's behalf. Verses 8 and 9. 
Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Jeremiah says, oh, you are the hope of Israel, God. You're our savior in times of trouble. Why are you acting like a stranger to us? Why are you acting like a traveler, somebody that's just passing through the land, stopping only to spend the night? Are you also confused? Is our powerful warrior helpless to save us? He's talking about God. You're right here with us, Lord. You're here among us. We're known as your people. Please don't abandon us now. And like people usually do when they're in trouble, the Jews turned to God and they prayed. But their prayers weren't exactly sincere and they weren't in repentance. Jeremiah had already confronted these people, these, you know, godly hypocrites with their sins back in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Where he said to them, do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? And then come here and stand before me, God says, in my temple and chat, we, chant, we are safe. Only to go right back to all of those evil sins again. And, and, and a lot of people do that. They feel they can come to church and, you know, do their thing and go home feeling good and just go right back to sin. Living the old life. They couldn't plead for help on the basis of their repentance. They didn't and couldn't go to God because they repented and they couldn't go because of God's covenant promise to them. The people asked God to help them for his name's sake. This was their argument. After all, God, it's your reputation that it's at stake here. So you, you need to take care of us because we're called by your name. They compared the hope and savior of Israel to a tourist in the land. One that isn't concerned about its present condition or its future destruction. The people said, Lord, you're like a person who went into shock and was paralyzed or, or a warrior without any strength at all. When God disciplines us, man, we have to do more than pray. And we have to do more than just ask for his help. Anybody in trouble to, can do that. And we we probably, even in, in the world, I know I did in the world when I got in some serious trouble or thought, man, this is, this is, this is going to really mess me up. Oh, Lord, you know, and I make all of these promises and pray and God would take care of it and I'd go back to the old life. We have to do more than pray and ask for his help. We have to repent of our sins and judge and confess them. And we have to sincerely seek the face of God. Because of their suffering. Here, there's a tendency to blame God. And I've heard that many times over the years. Why would God do this to me? And they were... Living a sinful life. 
He's not, doing it. He's not doing it to you. It's the result of your behavior, just as we started out in the chapter. He warns people, don't do that because this is what's going to happen. And I remember getting calls in, in my early years of, of marriage counseling, and just counseling in general. You know, I'd get calls from these young girls. You know, saying that I'm pregnant. Why would God do this to me? I don't blame God for that. Why did he do this to me? Why would he let this happen? Well, what do you think happens when a man and a woman come together in sex? Then you go to the Genesis, you'll see God designed that to happen. But under the, under the, the relationship of marriage. But blaming God... For the things that, that resulted because of certain behavior. And we do that a lot. God, why? Why did you do this to me? It's your fault. You ruined my future. You ruined my life. There's a tendency to blame God for our suffering. And here they practically demanded that God get them out of their mess. You need to get us out of this mess. Hey, it's your name at stake. We're called by your name, Lord. And when we do that, we bring God down to our level of being who's as fickle and shallow as we are. It's obvious that their whole problem lies in their wrong concept of God. Now, to cry because we're suffering the consequences of our sin is showing remorse, but it's not showing true repentance. Many times we, 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 we cry out because we're suffering. Not because we're remorseful, because the suffering is a result of what I have done. We're more concerned about the hurt that we're experiencing because of our sin rather than the hurt we bring upon God because we've sinned against Him. To cry because, again, we're suffering, the consequence of our sin is, not, is, is showing uh, remorse, but it's not true repentance. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a, and a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. Brokenness, repentance, I'm sorry, Lord. Turning away from that sin, not going back to it. That's true repentance. Now, God's going to respond to their prayer. Notice here in verses 10 through 12. You know, they said, Lord, you've got to fix this. You know, we're suffering. After all, we're called by your name. Your name's at stake. So God's not going to answer their, their prayer in verses 10 through 12. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wonder. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, that is Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. God responded to the people's words, not by sending rain, but by announcing their judgment. 
Because divine discipline was unavoidable. Jeremiah was, was told by God, do not pray for the good of Jerusalem. God says, fast, these words fast, offer burnt offerings. These were ways of showing repentance and establishing communion with God that were ineffective because of the people's disobedience. They were going through the motions with no emotion. Oh, I'll just give God my, this offering and, and oh, well, I'll, I'll do this. I'll fast and, you know, I'll, I, you know, I'll, you know I'll, I'll do this and that. But it doesn't do anything. It's not acceptable to God. He doesn't want it because the people are still disobedient. And Judah's doom was sealed. God saw right through their phony religion and he sees right through our phony religion. The people didn't have any deep, heartfelt sorrow for their sin. They're just mostly sorrow, sorry because they're suffering. Not recognizing it's their life, their living, their disobedience to the word of God that's brought their suffering. God sees right through our phoniness. The people's prayers were just lip service. Like a get out of jail free card. They love to wonder, they says here. God said they love to wonder. They haven't restrained their feet from going to false gods. Solomon said in Proverbs 4.27, Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your feet from evil. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Stay on that narrow road. And if you start to drift, hey, remove your foot from evil. Get back on that narrow road. And because they were still being disobedient, God's going to punish their sins. And for the third time, this is the third time that God told Jeremiah, hey, don't pray for these people. Here in verse 11, in chapter 7, verse 16, in chapter 11, 14, he said, he's, he's, don't, don't pray for them. His long-suffering, hey, at a cutoff point. And he was determined to punish them for their sins. They could fast. They could pray. They could bring their sacrifices all they want. But nothing was going to change God's mind. The gospel has been preached for 2,000 years. God's more than merciful, more than patient. But there is a day when the age of grace, the day of grace is going to close. And it will be over. And you better be saved. God saw their prayer was shallow. He saw that it was meaningless. He saw that they were sorry only because they were suffering. And God wouldn't be God if he gave in to their their cries, to to their crisis praying. That's what it was, crisis praying. Because there was no genuine faith behind their prayers. The Babylonian army would bring the sword and the results of it would be a devastating invasion. There would be famine and pestilence, verse 12 says. Look at verse 13. 
Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Jeremiah complained to the Lord about these false prophets who are telling a message of peace, who are giving the people a message of peace instead of war and pestilence. Just like today when you tell people Jesus is coming and he's going to rapture the church and man, there's going to be a great tribulation. Nah, that's... You can't believe that stuff. You know, and the arrogant prophets took God's mercies and promise of deliverance for granted as demonstrated in the days of Hezekiah and Isaiah when Jerusalem was miraculously rescued from the the siege of Sennacherib's army. Jeremiah tried to get the people off the hook by pointing out to God that the false prophets had misled them by prophesying and saying these words in verse 13. Notice, you shall not see the sword. The word tells, the the world tells you, you you know, you're not going to, none of that's going to happen. You're not going to see the sword. You're not going to see pestilence. You're not going to see all these things. The Lord seems to agree that the prophets are at fault when you look at verse 14. And the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. God says to Jeremiah, you know, I, I haven't sent them. I haven't spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision. How many people haven't read the Bible all the way through? And how much they don't know of the word of God and dare to say, God spoke to me. How can you say God spoke to me when you have not read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? That's why Paul said, I have not shunned to preach to you the gospel, the whole gospel of God. I got to know the word of God so that I can recognize when God speaks to me. The word divination here in verse 14 is is prohibited in Deuteronomy 18 verse 14. The words worthless thing here is is a a degrading description of the idols that were worshipped in the days of Isaiah but condemned by the law in Leviticus 19.4. Verses 15 and 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name whom I did not send and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they will have no one to bury them, nor their wives, their, nor their, uh, their, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. God's judgment would fall first on the false prophets because of their prophecies of peace. 
because they were lying to the people. And then next in line for God's judgment would be those who live in the city who had been deceived by the false prophets. But the inference is that the people were willing to be deceived. Why were they willing to be deceived? Because they liked the lies. You see, the lies pleased their sinful passions. It tickled their itching ears. They heard the true prophets preach repentance. Repent and turn to God and change from your sinful ways. But they didn't like that. They closed their ears to that truth. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 12, the coming of the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Man, if you aren't going to believe the the truth, all all you're doing is believing in a lie. There's nothing else to believe in. There's no middle ground. There's, there's, There's truth and falsehood. The root of the trouble with the people was that they preferred to hear a lie. They preferred a lie over the truth. And so the people and the prophets, they both are going to share the same punishment. Jeremiah said in verse 16, they will be cast out in the streets, that is the streets of Jerusalem, and there's not going to be anybody to bury them. Verses 17 through 22. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold those slain with the sword, and if I enter the city, then behold those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these. Here Jeremiah shares all that's in his heart. And he's sharing his grief over the troubles of the nation. But somehow Jeremiah's grief is also an expression of God's own grief and sadness. How did Jeremiah feel about his people? He felt the same way God felt. He wept for them. He wept for them the way a father would cry for a virgin daughter who had been violated and beaten and left to die. In prophetic vision, Jeremiah saw the land ravaged and the people taken captive to Babylon and this led them or led him to turn to God in prayer. 
He said in verse 17 from the New Living Version, New Living Translation, he said, Night and day my eyes overflow with tears. I can't stop crying for my virgin daughter, my precious people. They have been struck down and they lie mortally wounded. We all have to be more aware of the fact that we are witnesses for God. And if you're a child of God, you're a witness for God. Good or bad, you're a witness for God. And you're saying something by your life. You are saying something by the way you live. And we need to be really careful when we open our mouths and we speak the word of God. We have to be careful that what we say, our lives match what we say. Our word and works should be the same. We're not to be giving out the word of God in a cold-hearted way. There has to be feeling in it. And I'm not talking about a conjured up feeling, but if you have truly experienced the love of God and the birth of, of the Spirit of God, man, there, there is a sense that you have. There is a feeling that you have, a feeling that you know, and you can't. And that feeling is, is expressed, man, when you tell people what God has done for you. A passion. If there's not that feeling, then there's something very wrong with us. And then Jeremiah describes the results of the drought. In verse 18, he says, there will be civil strife, there will be plunder, and there will be death. And if somebody goes out to the field, they're going to see those who are killed by the sword. And if they go inside the city, they're going to see people sick from famine and disease. And all the while, the false prophets and the priests are traveling around through the land, putting on this act, this holiness, this phony holiness. Everywhere there's wickedness, frustration, and death. In praying for himself, Jeremiah was praying for them. And he asked God to honor his own name and to keep his covenant by healing the land. And even though God was definitely willing to keep his part of the covenant, the people weren't willing to keep their part. So Jeremiah's prayer wasn't answered. A faithful God cannot break his own word. Maybe Jeremiah would have been encouraged by God's grief. Oh, you know, getting encouraged. Well, you know, God's feeling grief for the people. So he might have been encouraged by that. And that's why. Jeremiah interceded for the nation. Oh, God's feeling, you know, mournful and he's feeling grief for the people. So Jeremiah breaks out in, in this new expression of grief for the people and he asks whether mercy, mercy and healing could still be, still be obtained by the people. He asks them in verse 19, have you utterly rejected Judah, God? And with a bitter cry, he confesses in verse 20, the iniquity of the fathers. The people of Judah acknowledged their wickedness. The word wickedness meaning rebellion. They recognized, they acknowledged their iniquity, meaning perversity, and the fact that they sinned. They've acknowledged all these things. These three terms indicate the extensiveness of sin that was in the land. And then he reminds God of the danger of ruining his own name in verse 21, and he begs them to remember his covenant that he made with the nation also in verse 21. God's reputation was at stake. And the blessing that would come to the people was at stake. But here the obligations of the people to the Lord are disregarded. They don't care about God's reputation. They don't care about the blessings that that the people had coming. 
They, could, they didn't care. Jeremiah then gladly acknowledges that the Lord is the only God. Notice in verse 22. Are there any among the idols of the nations that cause rain? You know, can any of these idols of any of these nations, can they bring down the rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord God? Therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all these things. Jeremiah is convinced that there is no hope but in the living God. And Jeremiah is writing on, there is no hope but in the living God. And Jeremiah says, he intends, I intend to wait upon the Lord until my prayer is answered. In closing, sometimes God allows disasters to happen. To bring nations and churches and individuals to their knees in repentance. The plagues that that God brought against Egypt, man, that should have made Pharaoh a repentant man. But Pharaoh only hardened his heart even more against the Lord. And you're going to see that. Well, no, you're not. You're not going to be see that in the great tribulation. But the Bible tells us that during the great tribulation, when God brings that great tribulation to the land, people are going to be shaking their fist at God. Can you imagine? They're in the midst of the great tribulation and the pain and the suffering because of God's judgment, and they're going to still shake their fist at God instead of repentance. Israel's treatment of the nation in Canaan was God's judgment because these nations refused to turn from their sins. We shouldn't look at every calamity, every disaster as being an act of God's wrath, but we need to be sensitive to God and we need to be willing to search our hearts and to confess our sins. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, Lord, and Father, for Jeremiah the prophet, Lord, and Father, his faithfulness to bring your message to the people. And Father, that's an example that each one of us here tonight need to follow. The Father, that we would take your message to the people with passion, with love, for what God has done for us. Because he's done for us what nobody else could do. And we thank you, Lord. For dying on a cross. For shedding your blood. For suffering. For a bunch of sinners. Father, help us to be what we've been saved to be, what we've been called to do. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Baptize us in your spirit, Lord. Give us the power, Lord, that we need to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, God to take the gospel to a dark and lost world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.